This morning's teaching text comes from Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Good morning. The Lord be with you. Um, this text this morning, the thing that sticks out to me, by the way, I'm Ed Gunger and uh, I'm your stand-in. <laughs> um, this morning, the, the text, that, the, the thing that most sticks out from this text to me from our gospel reading is that we're to move towards people irrespective of who they are or what they believe or how they act. And uh, our text speaks of this woman who in the Jewish world was an outsider. And uh, initially, Jesus doesn't even acknowledge her, which seems odd for Jesus. But I think what's happening is he's setting up the disciples for a kind of new way of thinking about people. Uh, the disciples, as, because the woman's not being responded to by Jesus, he starts chasing the disciples, at least that's the inference of the text. And they finally said to Jesus, would you please send her away? right? Um, she's embarrassing, annoying, odd, uh, and, and other religiously and culturally to the Jews. Jesus finally responds to the woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman then responds, but Lord, help me, she says. She's crying out. Um, but Jesus pushes back again with the obvious approving nod of the disciples and says to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I mean, he's basically calling her a dog. But she boldly responds, fighting for her daughter, and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus sort of switches and goes, Yes, that's good, you know. Um, way to go, sister. <laughs> you have great faith, he tells her. And your request is granted. And the scripture says her daughter was healed from that moment. You know, it's interesting, I think, that oftentimes when we read Jesus, he confuses us. I, I love that he does. I love that he's not simple. I love that he does things that sometimes you kind of... Could you contextualize that, please? <laughs> because he's so disruptive. You know, I, all my life when I was young, they used to me, Jesus, you know, came to give you life. And as I followed him closely over this last 40 years, I've, I thought to myself, you know, in one sense that's true, but in another sense, Jesus came to ruin my life. 
the life that I thought that I was to have, the life that puts me in the center of it, the life that calls me to respond to people in different ways than what I would normally think I should respond to them. But in the ruining of my own life, he does bring a new kind of life. And that's the challenge of what we call discipleship. The lesson here, I think, is that we don't get to write people off because they're different or odd or difficult. And this biblical narrative, if you follow it from the old, we call the Old Testament into the new. We go from the story of the Jews and God's redemptive actions in the life of the Jew to God's redemptive actions in the life of the church and the world at large. It's really a broadening kind of story. I mean, the Jews were under this redemptive act, but they had to follow these laws, both moral and social, as a kind of borders of their salvation. So even though God said, I would act in your lives redemptively, they had to live a certain way, act a certain way, and look a certain way. And it was pretty much a very um, limited, exclusive kind of expression. But what happens in the story of the church, it's the story of love going beyond borders. It's a story of, of how Jesus basically perforates the borders. And even though there's laws that still exist, the laws don't define our inside or outside. They simply help us be better humans, right? Not as a boundary marker for salvation. So in Christ, everybody can come. The good people, the bad people, the nice people, the naughty people, everybody gets to come just as they are. And the story of the church is a story of God's inclusiveness of all, not versus this exclusiveness. For God so loved the world, is how the story goes, that he gives Jesus. Not just God so loved the Jews who behaved appropriately. And so somehow... In our hearts, we need to, as we look at our world in which we live, instead of trying to divide up people as us and them or anything like that, we have to realize we're looking at people whom God has given his best for. And then in some way, we're to open our hearts to people in general. <laughs> I think it's interesting that the disciples' first impulse is to run from someone that seems odd to them or different from them or other to them. And... Uh, I think our call is to fight that impulse, which I think is very natural, but to echo the inclusiveness of the gospel by moving toward the odd, by moving toward the unusual, by moving toward, <laughs> I call them in my own context, the zoo people. Um, what I mean by a zoo person is a person who bites <laughs> or will hurt you. And all of us have some people like that. It might be a, abusive parent. It could be a, a really kind of drug-addicted someone that you know as you get close to them, they, instead of you drawing them into help, you get sucked into their pain. And so even though, even though sometimes you have to put up boundaries to deal with some people so they don't hurt you, that doesn't mean you don't go there and visit them and love them and keep strong boundaries but care for them. This uh, season that we're in in the church calendar, and I love... As I grew up, my tradition didn't have, uh, we didn't celebrate the church calendar. Everything had to be spontaneous, right? And uh, we just made it up as we went along. But one of the things I've fallen in love with, you know, I'm, uh, as I've hit my 60s, I'm an official old guy. And one of the things that I absolutely love is how the church has, over the years, centuries really, millennia, 
uh, started talking about it in the second century. We're talking about how could we orient the calendar so that we remembered the story. So that it's not just about me spontaneously trying to deal with me, but me stepping into a place where the story forms me. And in this season, it's called Epiphany. And it's a season when we talk about how God, the God who, according to Isaiah, loves to hide, comes out. And somehow his glory is seen. We celebrate stories like the, uh, uh, the story of the uh, Magi who... God appears to them, even though they were pagans, or the story of Jesus turning water into wine and somehow his glory is seen. That notion of the hidden God coming out is this season of epiphany. And I want to drill into this because the suggestion from our story here, I think, for us and the challenge for us, is that we in our lives are to bring God to bear in the context of the relationships we have, the places in which we serve and go that the hidden God somehow should find expression through us. And because of his expression through us, meet the needs of the people that we encounter. So I want to drill into that a little bit. Talking about bearing the story uh, of inclusiveness to those outside of faith. Um, Bearing witness is how it's been told in our tradition growing up, my tradition growing up, we called it evangelism, right? Right. which has caught some negative connotations because of how that was you know, constructed. But it's articulated by Jesus in Mark 16. You remember this text. He said to them, to his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Gospel just means good news. And the good news is everybody can be in. You don't have to, be, you don't have to change yourself. You can just come as you are. Proclaim this good news to all creation. Interestingly, Jesus said to his disciples, sidebarring with them at one point, He was talking about his return and he said, when I return, will I find faith in the earth? Which seems to me to say, we have something to do with that. That on some level we should bear in our heart the notion that the hidden God should be seen through us. And that we run into the pain of people around us, we shouldn't just say, ah, they're not, you know, let's just not deal with that. It's embarrassing. They're embarrassing. You just sort of scurry along trying to flee from people in pain. I have a confession, though, at the get-go. I, I've always found this command to bear witness about Christ to other people as very difficult to pull off. I think maybe it's because I like to be liked, right? And, um, and I don't like to make other people feel uncomfortable. And most of my faith moments where I shared have been so awkward and embarrassing to me and, and seemingly for the victims of my over-witnessing adventures. Uh, I have some great friends who really have this kind of gift of evangelism. I mean, they can talk about Jesus and it's cool. <laughs> I mean, I got one friend, Pastor um, Jeff Perry, he's in St. Louis, has a large church there. And, and he just has this way. I've known him for 45 years. Um, he has this way about him. I would walk down, we are still just out of high school, I would walk down the street with him or something and he's a, you know, just a nice looking guy and a great smile and this engaging, gregarious kind of personality. But it had more than just big selfness. He was self-giving. And he would just, we're walking down the street, I'm talking to him, he'd see somebody, two or three people go, hey, have you guys heard the good news? And they go, no, what? And he'd say, Jesus loves you. And they go, oh, thanks, man. You know, and I think, right? I'm looking at that thinking, holy cow, Right? 
Or another friend of mine, he's passed away now, his name is Joseph Jennings. I'd be out, he's a big black guy who was, who was like, a, looked like a football guy. And people just loved him. I mean, everywhere he went, everyone was his friend. And we get on elevators or be sitting with, you know, in, in, with a server, you know, at the, at the restaurant. And he would look at them and say, have you, have you ever asked Jesus Christ to be kind of in charge of your life? And they would look and say, no, I, I'm not even sure what you mean. What do you mean? I mean, they were so open. <laughs> and, and so I would pray about that. And then, <clears throat> and then I'd try to imitate it. Have you heard the good news? Right. <laughs> I always came across like a complete goon or some kind of stalker <laughs> that people so, you know, kind of would just pull away from me and walk away. And, I, and I'm telling you that guilt was the only fruit of these ideas for me. These verses, bearing the gospel, talking to others about, will I find faith? All those things were just, they just expressed guilt in me. And, uh, but, but over the years, I began to discover that God helps us with what doesn't come natural to us. And I also discovered that God can really use us in ways that are less confrontational in terms of communicating this inclusive gospel to all people. That, that, that we can communicate it in ways that will feel more natural for our personality, for our understanding, and for our way with people. And that, which means you can take a role in reaching your world for Christ. Um, I think it's possible for every believer to fulfill Jesus' words in Matthew 5, where he tells them in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world, a city that can't be hidden. You are the light of the world. That means that on some level we'll, we're built to brighten places. That when we walk into a job or we walk into a home or into an apartment or a set of relationships that, that on some level, because we're there, people should feel it's brighter, it's less dark, less creepy, that somehow we can bear that kind of strength. He said in the verse right before that, he says, you're the salt of the earth. <laughs> salt and light. Salt is, it just makes things tastier. Right? In the, in the developing world and in the ancient world, it prevented rot. So think about that. God wants us to go into the world and be a people that when we walk in, people go, it's just better when you're here. This whole thing just tastes better. This, it's just not as rotten because you're here. And that that kind of life begins to bring to bear the glory of God. See, we can do evangelism without being extroverted or creating awkward. Beyond your gifting kind of thing, you can bring those to bear. We can, we, what the, but the question is, what does that look like? And I just wanted to give you this morning three quick little examples of what I think that can look like for you. One is what I've already kind of alluded to is a well-lived life. I'm not talking about a perfect life. You don't have to be perfect. In fact, you can suck at a lot of things and you can get over the suck. People will give you suck room, right? Um, my dad was a Muslim. He came to faith in Christ late in life. But he was a Muslim. And um, when I was growing up, you know, he would lose his anger. He had some anger issues. And one, one time he 
it was I had done something, I don't know, something stupid, which I was pretty good at. And he comes upstairs and I had already kind of, um, it was laying in bed and he woke me up. He was so angry and he had a belt and he started spanking me pretty hard. Was, you know, we're talking the 60s here, so it was cool. Um, you could beat your children then. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so he's spanking me pretty hard, you know, and it hurt. I mean, it hurt. And he walked out about five minutes later. I was so angry, you know. About five minutes later, he comes back in and he kneels at my bed and he's weeping. And he said, son, I am so sorry. I've just been under a lot of pride. I'm so sorry. He hugged me and kissed me. And you know, I loved my dad. He has passed on. I love my dad. I so respected him. Even though he wasn't perfect. So you don't have to be perfect in life. But you have to live well. Which sometimes means lots of I'm sorry's. It never happened again. That never happened again. So he dealt with it as far as I was concerned. He kept beating me. But but my point is that you need to live well. Here's what the research says. People in the 21st century are less interested in the truth. I mean, they're like Pilate. What is truth? (laughs) Who knows what truth is? They're less interested in the truth than they are in the things that have changed the way you live. That's really changed the way you live. I mean, that thought has actually made a difference in how you live. That's what catches their attention. What beliefs have transformed you? Which means if you want to affect others with the gospel, you need to let the gospel affect you. That key idea is found in something Jesus said in John 17, for them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. What sanctify is just a fancy word for make different. If you want to help make others different, you have to let whatever it is you're trying to tell them make a difference in you. Augustine and other church fathers claim that that the gospel reorients us because it addresses the self. Um, We live in a culture that's a post-Christian culture, maybe even beyond that post-Christian culture, which really puts the self at the center of everything, even in our faith. You know, it's people talk about the gospel. In a lot of places you go to hear the preaching of the gospel, it's about you becoming your most, your best self through Christ. Uh, you know, I, I think the gospel is really, Jesus is out to kill you. <laughs> you know, this thing's about a cross. It's about you getting past you. It's about you coming alive in something beyond you. It's very, very insulting and very offensive to a modern thought or modern thinker who who loves the self and believes God should serve whatever self I have. If there is a God, he's certainly there to love me and help me kind of thing. But this notion of the the, the church fathers would say that, that at the heart of the gospel is this call to the crucified self because the problem is we don't love rightly. We love inappropriately which, in, in fact, Augustine used the term <laughs> incurvatus. It's a, it's a great Latin term, incurvatus. You know, it sounds spooky. But, uh, but what it means is our, our, our ability to love is bent. In other words, it's not pure in that we love things. It's only that we love things for what they do for us. So it's not a love toward God and a love toward things appropriately. It's a love of self. It's like a boomerang bluff. So I, the, the miser loves money, not because she loves money, but because she loves how it makes her feel when she counts it. The glutton doesn't love food. 
The glutton simply loves the way he feels when he eats it. It's just self-love. We don't love anything but ourselves is what incurvatus means. This is the worm, according to Augustine. This is the worm that crawled its way into the human condition. We just don't love things right. And so we love people for how they make us feel. We want to get married so I'm happier. I don't want to be married anymore because you don't make me happy. It's this incurvatus love. It's, it's a, a twisted love. It's a boomeranged love. It's wicker furniture, this twisted wood. It's where we get the word wicked or wicked. Our hearts are wicked because it's twisted because we only love for what we get out of it. And so to die to self is the only hope. The crucified self is to let our will be broken. If I had a piece of bent wood here that's, you know, off a dead tree or something, the only way to straighten that is by breaking it. And so we become broken and we say, Jesus is Lord. And somehow we begin to love rightly. And loving rightly disorients people. (laughs) They're surprised. It's unexpected. A loving person captures the attention of other people. The loving person who truly loves can only love because of the love of God. It's Paul who says, he says, hope doesn't have to be disappointing in our lives in Romans 5 because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So it isn't that we, that we really love. It's more like we reflect the love of God. At best, we're like moons, you know. The moon which you obviously know, uh, doesn't have any light. only has borrowed light. And so it sort of positions itself through the course of the month to capture rays and reflect it to the world, right? And if you look closely at the moon, you realize it's, it only has craters in a dark side. It has no light, but it has that borrowed light. And, and so what, what, the, what, what, what it is to be a believer is, is not so much to try to be something, It's more to position ourselves in our openness to a living God who has taken residence in our hearts. Paul said we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That somehow we actually let the light of Christ, when we're the light of the world, we're reflecting the light of Christ. It's something more than us, right? And somehow if you look at us closely, all all we really have are craters and a dark side, right? Right? But, but if we can position ourselves, this is the why of prayer, the why of gathering, the why of hearing preaching, the why of singing with our hearts to God, the why of allowing the thoughts of Scripture to get into our minds and reorient our thinking. It's all because we're positioning ourselves to catch the rays and reflect them to a dark world. We're supposed to moon the world. So I was in this this small church in Wisconsin, and back in the day, this was in 1980 when I started pastoring, and 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 I was trying. I was such an evangelical kind of guy. I was trying to win the whole city by the weekend, and so I got these guys motivated, and we were we were going door to door out on the streets in this little town of 18,000 people, <laughs> and uh, so everything. i was just trying to get people to come to Christ and see, and just it just didn't work well, you know. <laughs> And, and I got this in my heart. Just teach the people you serve to live well. And over the course of years, the largest evangelical church in that city was about 100 people. And our church was about seven or 800 people while I was there. And, 
And what was interesting is when you went out to talk to people about why they ended up in the church, you'd hear these kinds of stories. One lady I asked, I said, well, how did you end up here? She said, well, I know Catherine, one of the nurses in our church. I said, well, what, what got you, how did get get you to church? She said, well, well, she is the most loving person. And she said, we have this gal that we all, that the nurses work with, who's one of the head nurses. Nobody wants to work with her. They shifted every month. They would change teams in that hospital back then. And uh, everyone avoided getting on this nurse's team because everybody, nobody liked her. But Catherine was on that team all the time. And so she finally asked her because she was so nice. She said, Catherine, why are you on this team? I mean, you know, she seems, she's even caustic to you. And she goes, oh, I know that. She said, but she said, I I just want to get close enough to people that need hope and help and, and peace and encouragement. She goes, why? She says, well, just part of my faith. She goes, where do you go to church? <laughs> and, and so a lot of the people that started coming to the community were coming, not because they were amazing evangelists, but because they lived amazing lives. This is not a platonic spirituality. Platonic spirituality, Plato kind of basically articulated that this earth is a world of shadows and that the real world is in the spirit. And I think sometimes we make our faith, we just got to just in contact with Jesus. You need to get in contact with Jesus thinking that's what evangelism is. You need to, to let me pray with you, you get in contact with Jesus. I think it's, I think that's, there's truth to that. But I think what we should really be thinking is, is not asking people to believe in Jesus as much as we are committed to introducing Jesus to them through a transformed life. Let's show them Jesus. Let's give them substance, life, where they're surprised by our willingness to give ourselves in forgiveness to them. Where we're slapped on the face and instead of reacting out of the sting, we turn the other cheek. And in turning the other cheek, what we're saying is, I'm not going to respond to you from, or react to you from my pain. I'm not going to react to you from the sting. I'm going to respond to you from the place that's healthy place that's not stinging, the place that gives another place, a deeper place. And all of a sudden, the way in which we live and conduct ourselves, somebody takes credit for the stuff we did. And we still move toward them and smile at them and love them and applaud them. And after a while, people will test it and get weirder at you, meaner at you. But if you just stick in there and love them and you take the words of Jesus or the words of Peter when he said, Jesus was crucified showing us a way to live that when he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he was uh, threatened or when he was uh, cursed at, he didn't utter threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God and kept giving himself to people. That kind of living, selfless living, captures people. It disorients them. I think this is why we're to embody the prayer of St. Francis, I think. We have this here. Let's pray this together. It's attributed to him. We don't know if he really did it, but, but let's pray this together. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, 
For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. I'm suggesting to you that you have the power to change your world. You have the power to make the hidden God known. And it's not because you have to get up and blabber and put tracks in front of people's faces. But you can simply run at conflict and trouble, not away from it as peacemakers. Like Jesus moved and opened himself to this woman who was an outsider. You will shake up your world if you do this. You will stick out. And a couple more thoughts. One is, the second one is, when you're reaching out to people, know that God's already with them. Recognize that the people you're addressing and dealing with, even though they are odd, and even though they are mean, that Paul, looking at the pagans of the world in Athens, said, in him you live and move and have your being. That God, that he told them, your dreams of God come true. God chose the exact time and the exact place in which you'd be born. He's talking to pagans. He's talking to people that just absolutely had no interest in God. He told them, he said, he said and, and he created you so that you could reach out to him and find him because he's near you. Every person you see, no matter who they are, God's near them. So when you're going to them, it's not like we're the God people to the stupid people. We're all people in whom God has invested his life. And he's with people. That doesn't mean they don't have to address the cross. It doesn't mean that salvation, in the sense that we understand it, is, is already on people. I'm not suggesting that. And the scripture doesn't suggest that. But God is there. One more text about that is Acts 14. If you can throw that up there. This is, this is Paul when he had done a, a, this miracle and <laughs> this guy was healed. And it was in this town that there were Zeus worshipers. And so all the, 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 the temple to Zeus, the people all came out. They thought that Paul had done this as a, as a person who had become a god or Zeus had come down to earth. And so this real miracle they had co-opted into their pagan narrative. And even though they did that, Paul didn't get ticked off at them. Do you know how many people are experiencing love and hope and success and, and joy and friendship and they don't attribute it to God at all. They attribute it to their own gods, their own way of constructing things. That doesn't mean God's not involved with them. In fact, Paul makes this beautiful statement. He said, in the past, God has let all the nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. God always leaves a testimony in every person's life you look at. He has shown them kindness by, watch, giving them rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food. And I love this part. And he fills your hearts with joy. These are people who know nothing about God. These are people who everything that God is doing, they co-opt into a pagan narrative, a false narrative. And yet, those, yet Paul is saying, God's making you, he's the one that makes you happy. I mean, you know, the falling in love, you know how you look at your baby, when you hold your baby for the first time, you know, you know how, how when you get together with your friends and you're laughing, you're having, that's all God. He's giving you all that capacity for joy. It's a gift from him. It's his testimony in your life. Every person you and I see, God is already working in their lives. So when we go to them, we shouldn't be thinking, well, I, you need to be like me. <laughs> we don't have to be weird people that are us theming them, right? It's, it's not a dialectic of me and you. It's, hey, God's already working in your life. Do you see it? It's almost, it's almost like going to someone, isn't that we carry God in a God box or a God book 
and they don't have them until we show up. It, it's, it's more like um, that we're sharing this being who holds us in life. I was talking to this um, uh, neurosurgeon, and, and this is where I was pastoring for in the 80s, and he called himself an agnostic. And, and I said to him, I said, you know what, Doc? I said, this may sound a little weird, but I said, I think God's already doing stuff in your life. I mean, he's, he, there's ways he's present. I just think maybe you're not seeing it. I, and he kind of looked at me. I said, like, for instance, I said, is there any place in your life where you feel anything transcendent, you know, like any kind of peace or something? And, and he said, well, I don't know what you mean. I said, like, like when you hold your, first hold your kids or, or anything like that, or going out in nature. He says, oh, he says, I love to hike. And he says, sometimes I'll be out hiking and, and I'll come across a scene or something and, I, and it feels like it's peaceful, like something more than me. But he said, that's just nature. I said, what if that's not? I said, what if that's God? And what if, what if when you're feeling that impulse of that peace, he's reaching out to you? What if that's him? He laughs out loud. I said, listen. I said, next time, even if you even think of this conversation, if you even remember the conversation, and you're out and in, in, in doing something in nature, hiking, whatever, and if you come to a moment like that, ask it. <laughs> ask it. Are you Jesus? He laughed out loud again. Well, this was back in the day of no emails and, you know, you just got letters or calls. And uh, so he was, he had moved away from the place and it was months later, I get a letter from him. He said, Pastor Ed, I'm out hiking. He had moved to the North Pacific Northwest out by Seattle. He said, I'm out hiking in the mountains. He said, I was with some friends. And he said, I came across this pass. He said, it was the most beautiful thing I had ever really seen. And I looked out and it just hit me. This palpable peace just hit me. And I remembered our conversation. And so he said, under my breath, because I was with other people I didn't want them to see, under my breath, I said, are you Jesus? <laughs> and he said, I heard, yes, I am. He said, what do I do now? <laughs> what if evangelism isn't fronting people? What if evangelism isn't trying to talk them into a message? What if evangelism is just simply like a Sherlock Holmes helping them catch the God who's already at work in their life? would make our jobs very, very different. We would lean into people. We would scratch and sniff. (laughs) I got to shut up. Last thing. (laughs) Last thing is, is in the midst of all this, ask God for open doors that no one will shut. Ask for the Holy Spirit's leading. Ask for boldness so that when a door opens up, because it'll open up unexpectedly, that you'll catch it. The text for that is Colossians 4. And pray for us too, Paul says, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. I dare you to pray this. Just in the course of your everyday life, God, will you just open doors for me and, and to be able to talk about the mystery of you being in my life? And, and will you give me clarity and boldness <laughs> so I can do it? I, I was... Uh, my last story, I was in um, college and studying, for, I was in nursing school at the time and um, and then God flips stuff on me, he's out to ruin your life. But anyway, the point is, is that I'm in this, bi- it, it was a biology class and I was uh, working with the professor doing some extra credit, so I'm in his office a lot. And the whole time I was there, I was saying, God, you know, he's a really smart guy, he, he was an atheist. And I said, God, would you help me? I want to do this as under you. Would you help me to just start to stick out? 
and to make a difference through how I'm acting because I'm not a big preacher. I just, got, I just didn't do that well. And so the whole semester goes on and I'm praying about this and, 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 and I'm out during spring break and I'm walking on the street in the little town I'm in. He pulls up in a car. He's obviously troubled. He said, hey, doc. I leaned over into the car. And he said, Ed, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, why are you always so happy? Why is your life, it just seems like you've, you've got something about you. Now, one would call this an open door. And here's what I said. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just kind of a happy guy. That story pained me for years and years. I actually did call him up months later and say, Doc, you know, I was going to, and it was all awkward and all weird. And <laughs> tried to tell him my story. He didn't want to listen. I missed my moment. I wonder how much God is working to give us moments because you matter. You don't have to be a preacher. In fact, I would suggest to you that we'll reach the world if more people are not preachers. We need people to live well, to be in the world. Amen.